Do you really, really believe in hell? There is a place, a dark place, where ancient evil slumbers and waits to return. In the absence of light, darkness prevails. There are things that go bump in the night. Make no mistake about that. And we are the ones who bump back. Now playing's Hellboy Retrospective Series. World, here I come. Hosted by Jacob. Didn't I kill you already? Stuart. Remind me why I keep doing this. Rotten eggs and the safety of mankind. Huh. And Arnie. The good, the bad, and the worst. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and hellish language. Fuck my ectoplasmic schwanstocher. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, hey, hey. Get on. Come on, Jack. Let's go fight some monsters. Today we're discussing Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. Starring Ron Perlman, Selma Blair, Doug Jones, Jeffrey Tambor, Seth MacFarlane, Luke Goss, Anna Walton, and John Hurt. Directed by Guillermo del Toro. This is Arn Sapien, co-host of Now Play. Stuart in LA. And this is your royal assness, Jacob. And we're back after years of success for both Del Toro and Dark Horse. We're back with a sequel that probably never should have happened. It wasn't profitable enough to get a number two, but I think because... Guillermo del Toro was coming off his Oscar wins and his critical plaudits for Pan's Labyrinth. He could command the next project. Whatever he wanted to do, he could probably get it to the screen. And he wanted to do this. You know what I love about Guillermo is he's like a fanboy. This isn't a job. And Blade 2 isn't a job he takes because he needs a paycheck. And these aren't the studio films he does in between his artworks to fund his artworks. He has the love for Hellboy that he has for Pan's Labyrinth, and I love that about him. Yeah, I mean, that first Hellboy, it became a modest success once it came out on DVD. It, it had to take that long-term path, but, you know, they released a couple of Hellboy cartoons in between. Uh, there was, I guess, enough interest that on Cartoon Network, they did two 75-minute television shows. I'm not going to call them movies, so we don't have to retroactively go back and do them. <laughs> well, that's all they was supposed to be, right? I mean, that's what I suspected those things were where like we're never getting a sequel so let's spin it off into a new medium and so it'll be more like the comic I'm guessing without Del Toro and animated? It wasn't Del Toro but they got the cast back. They got Perlman. They got Selma Blair. They got Doug Jones to voice Abe Sapien this time. No David Hyde Pierce. They even got John Hurt to do Broom. Okay. Yeah if you want a more Broom Stuart go watch these animated things. I did. No. Actually don't go watch these animated things. I did. They're like Scooby Doo episodes. <laughs> (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I'm not in love with the animation style. I, one's called Sword of Storms. I That one, I think, is the more interesting one because it's about going to Japan and Hellboy transports back to feudal Japan. If you like Turtles 3, there you go. I gave it a recommend. I don't know if I liked it. <laughs> I viewed it as Princess Mononoke with Hellboy in it. It was actually the one I liked lesser. Okay, yeah, the other one, Blood and Iron, it was taken from Wake the Devil. The story arc had to do with vampires. And yeah, they take place before for that first film and the characterization is more like the comic there is also they try to do another cartoon series inspired by Mike Mignola and he's never said if this is connected to the Hellboy universe but the amazing screw on head which is about a head that could screw into different robot bodies he thought of, oh this would be the greatest toy line ever because you just keep selling <laughs> the, you know you think of all those Batman toys where it's just his arctic suit and his jungle suit and it's just the same mold over and over painted differently but it takes place during the time of Abraham Lincoln and who is kind of the head of the BPRD and also president and the screw on head voiced by Paul Giamatti goes around uh, fighting creatures just like in Hellboy they got a pilot out and never got picked up but yeah they they tried to do some animated stuff in between what I found funniest about the animated stuff is they asked David Hyde Pierce to come back and to do the voice and he as I mentioned last show didn't want the credit for doing the voice with Doug Jones as the body but they asked him back here where it's just a voiceover role and he refused but yet they got Perry Gilpin, Frazier's Roz, to play a different character in these animated series. So I guess they needed to keep that Frazier feel. <laughs> it's essential, I guess. Uh, I'm going to skip these. You guys aren't selling me on that this is a continuation of the goodwill I had with that first movie? No, I, they're not essential. I had trouble even paying attention to both of these. Both of them, I was multitasking by midway through. They were uninteresting. And you know the worst part is, for some reason, both Selma Blair and Ron Perlman don't bring the same voice. Ron Perlman's voice is so flat and it doesn't have the same tenor as it does on screen. I had to double check that it was his voice because it doesn't sound like him. No, I don't know if he needs to get into character and get into makeup to bring the Hellboy performance, but that was why I wanted to watch these animated things. And I, they'd actually been on my bucket watch list for a long time. I used this as an opportunity to watch them. I wish I hadn't. You got a weird bucket list for films. <laughs> Well, then I will take that as a cue. I don't think I was in danger of really watching them anyway, but all right. I will just uh, consider it as just part of a failed experiment to continue it in a different direction, righted by the fact that Del Toro was coming back to direct a sequel. And Dark Horse had had some success. I think Sin City was their comic. That had been a successful movie. 300 was their comic. That had worked. I think that they were feeling confident. They certainly gave a whole lot of money for Del Toro to put his vision on screen this time. Well, they gave him 20 more million dollars. Yeah, that's a lot. The last one was around 67. Now he's got 85 million. 85 million's a freaking indie film these days. For an effects film like this, it's not a whole lot. And, and I'll talk about some changes he had to make because of that. I, it's hard for me to consider this a low-budget movie, $80 million. Modestly budgeted? How about that? I, you know, I get that, yes, compared to today's standards. But today's standards also has star power. You know, Marvel movies come with big movie stars getting big salaries. I don't think that anyone in this universe would command 
any major portion of the budget. Marvel made those people stars. No, they Robert Downey Jr., uh, no. Okay, but don't tell me Chris Evans and Chris Hemsworth had robust careers before this moment. They had careers, but... Uh, <laughs> but yes, they were not stars. They were not household names. I am not going to debate this anymore. I, <laughs> all I am going to say is that 80 million buys you a lot of Muppets, and we're going to see a lot of Muppets on screen. I mean, when I saw the first Hellboy film, I, I got into the comic. By the time the second one came out, I was a huge Hellboy fan, having read everything, having seen the film. And I was there, not opening weekend, I was there opening night. And Friday night after work, went with my best friend, who's a Hellboy fan as well. It was sold out. Like, we were almost in the front row to see this. And when we got out of the theater, there was a huge line for the next showing. I'm like, wow, this is going to be a big film. I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, it didn't quite do that big. I was there opening weekend as well. I was really craving a movie is really what it was. It was summer. They put this thing out mid-July to, you know, get that big summer movie audience. The first one came out... I think it was April of 2004, but this one, they, they had more money invested in it. They expected bigger returns. Honestly, I was just jonesing because Dark Knight was going to open in six days, and that was the movie <laughs> I really wanted to see, and then we were like, well, well, it's not out yet. What do we see? This was sort of the default. I did see this in theaters, but it was a crowded summer for me. I was doing irregular now playing reviews, but this was the year of Iron Man and Incredible Hulk. And yeah, Dark Knight was a week later, but I did end up seeing Hellboy 2 in theaters. It was, I don't remember when, it was near the end of its run though. That's like a four week period. It wasn't out long. Yeah. My theater, I don't remember it being very crowded, but I remember, yes, that it opened pretty well. It was number one that for the week. Yeah, but as soon as Dark Knight came out, it was all over. The movie was vanished, erased from memory. Truthfully, while I really heaped praise on Hellboy 1, what a shitty summer for this movie to come out. Like I just said, <laughs> Iron Man, Incredible Hulk, Dark Knight. There were so many major comic book movies with Iron Man and Dark Knight would blow theaters apart and Hulk didn't do so well and this movie didn't even do as well as Hulk and I think there was just too many comic book heroes in theaters that summer for them all to do well. Perhaps it should have come out in March like what made 300 a big success coming out when it wasn't so saturated with this kind of film. Yeah, this is a cult character. This is not a mainstream character and maybe you could say that about Hulk and Iron Man too. Uh, I don't know, but to me this is definitely a quirky put him out with no competition kind of universe. And they bet too big on a movie that could never hope to pull that in. It made $70 million here in America, did much better overseas, but ultimately, I think they probably only broke even on this production, and I don't think there will be a Hellboy 3, although clearly they're setting themselves up for it. That's why we're doing this retrospective, is because we gave up hope. I mean, even Ron Perlman, who had been saying again and again... Oh, maybe we'll make it happen. Maybe we'll make it happen. Maybe we'll make it happen. There are some rights issues at play as well. I know Guillermo wanted it. I know 
Ron Perlman wanted it. But finally, recently, Ron Perlman's like, yeah, it's time to give up hope. It's just not going to happen. And so now we had a chance to cover it. Yeah, I was so hopeful for a Hellboy 3. I've now transferred that hope into a Carl Urban dread sequel, either in films or on Netflix, which he is pushing for now. So you're just a <laughs> champion of lost causes, I take it. Yeah, I'm also waiting for that third Crank film. <laughs> Yeah, if it comes back, I guess we can discuss it after we talk about this movie. I don't think it will come back from this creative team. But this is more or less the creative team that launched Hellboy. They're going to lose one character, the one we complained about last week. (laughs) But it is essentially, yes, they were just given more money to do more of what they want, and they took it, I think, even further into left field. Well, Guillermo wanted Rupert Evans back, but his career was so busy, he couldn't squeeze it in. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Really. So they just wrote him out. What was he doing? Yeah, that's a very good question. (laughs) Is that like I'm washing my hair? I can't go out Saturday night? I'm so busy? I don't believe that. He didn't even have to put on all the prosthetics. Like, he's got the easiest role. Yeah, this was obviously the biggest role of his entire career, and he can't come back for it. Well, I think it makes a statement. I think that the move away from humanity is very clear in the themes of this movie, with the casting of this movie. Arnie, why don't you get into the plot? We can get into Hellboy 2, the Golden Army. In ancient times, the world was shared by man, goblins, trolls, elves, and many other creatures. No, no, no. Hellboy 2, the Golden Army, not Lord of the Rings. I know. (laughs) I know. That's what I I actually was like. Did I put in the right disc? I hadn't. Well, actually, I knew. I'd seen this before, but it is a little bit jarring especially since this is told to us as the professor reads young pre-adolescent hellboy a fairy tale but of course we all know this is the prologue humans started to wipe out the other species so in defense elven king balor has built the golden army about five thousand giant mechanical unstoppable warriors these machines kill mercilessly and balor regrets his decision He makes a truce with man that the elves will stick to the forests, man keeps the cities, and the crown that controlled the army is broken into three pieces. Balor keeps one, gives one to his daughter, and one to man. But in present day, Balor's son, Prince Nauta, played by Luke Goss, chafes at the ruin elven life has become. He steals the human's piece of the golden crown, then kills his father for the second piece. The third piece, as I said, is held by Nuwata's twin sister, Princess Nuwala. We're going to have a lot of confusion about that. Played by Anna Walton. And to keep it from her brother, she flees the land right into the arms of the BPRD, who were investigating the tooth fairies Nuwata released while stealing the crown. But the BPRD has had some issues lately during the tooth fairy investigation. Hellboy revealed himself to the media, which causes the Bureau to send a new agent to keep track of the group, Johann Krauss, a floating cloud of ectoplasm that inhabits a deep-sea diver suit and is voiced by Seth MacFarlane, using the exact same voice he uses for the German fish on American Dad. Additionally, Hellboy and his girlfriend Liz, played by Ron Perlman and Selma Blair respectively, are having relationship problems as Liz is pregnant and she's not sure how to tell her beau. And even more, amphibian agent Abe Sapien, this time voiced and played by Doug Jones, finds himself falling in love with the princess who shares his psychic powers. 
but Nawada has a psychic and physical bond with his sister. When one is wounded, the other is also. So Nawada tracks Nuala to the BPRD headquarters and defeats a drunken Hellboy in battle, leaving a magical blade in the demon's chest. But Nuala has hidden the crown piece, so Nuwada demands the other BPRD agents bring the crown. To protect Nuala, Abe steals the crown piece and along with Kraus, Liz, and the wounded Hellboy, go to Northern Ireland, the resting place of the Golden Army. An angel of death is called to heal Hellboy's wound and Liz reveals her pregnancy. But Nuwada the prince gets the third crown piece and brings the Golden Army. The BPRD can't kill the machines, they repair as fast as they're injured, so Hellboy challenges Nawada's right to control the army. The two duel in a rematch that Hellboy wins, but he spares the prince's life. Angry, Nawada moves to stab Hellboy in the back, but is stopped when the princess stabs herself in the stomach, killing both her and her brother. Then Kraus, Abe, Liz, and Hellboy all quit the BPRD to live an uncertain future, with Liz revealing she's carrying twins as credits roll. Now, I mentioned last week that when I saw this movie, I had a less than positive experience to that. And I couldn't remember why. I just remembered that I left frustrated. But coming back into this movie, I have to suspect a big reason is we're stepping away from the mythology that they were building last week. There is no more Lovecraft here. This is Tolkien. This is where I feel we have really become into a Del Toro film. I mean, this movie seems a lot to me like Pan's Labyrinth with some of its creatures we're going to see. The Angel of Death, who is also played by Doug Jones here, reminds me a lot of the character Doug Jones played in Pan's Labyrinth. This whole thing about the prince upset and killing the king reminds me a lot of the Reavers from Blade 2, including Luke Goss was playing one of the vampires in that film. This just feels like we have left the world of Dark Horse behind and we are now in a Del Toro universe. Yeah, I'll say this. I don't know. For me, it feels like it could be a Hellboy story, but it definitely feels like a Del Toro Hellboy story. Like, I don't think Mignola has ever delved like this much into, I'll just say it, fairy tales. This feels like a fairy tale. And when I started watching it, the two girls came in. They're like, what are you watching? They're like, oh, Hellboy's got kitties. We're going to watch this with you. Even the five-year-old was able to go with this vibe because it just, it doesn't feel like that horror Lovecraftian evil Nazi zombie movie that we talked about last week. It's got a totally different vibe. I, I, I go along with it though. I, I do like that this is about the monsters now. We got rid of Myers and we're going to focus on just all these strange creatures. And yet they kept Broom. I was not expecting to see John Hurt back here for the prologue at Douglas Army Base. Christmas Eve 1955. Chastising puppets. I love little Hellboy. Like, even in the comics, like, whenever they show Hellboy as a kid, like, it is one of my favorite things. And I love that we get this flashback here. Something about the kid's teeth are distracting to me, you know, when he's brushing them and things. And obviously the kid's mouth isn't matching the words. I don't even know if this voice is by that kid. But it's a cute design. It's actually a woman. <laughs> dressed up here all right but yeah i'd like the little details like there's the chip in the tooth one of the horns is cracked like you can tell hellboy's a rascal yeah and uh going through puberty that i i thought his horns were coming in here that's what i assumed anyway but yeah he is wanting a bedtime story before santa arrives and he is watching 
Howdy doody time. John Hurt has a lot of opinions about it being a wretched puppet. Uh, what are we to make of that? Later, when he tells the bedtime story, it is envisioned as a puppet show. They did that because they didn't have the budget. Del Toro wanted to go Lord of the Rings with this fairy tale. He oh. wanted this to be that huge prologue battle that we saw in Fellowship of the Rings. They just did not have that budget. So they decided to go, you know, it's a fairy tale. Let's go with that puppet look. Hellboy was just watching Howdy Doody. This is how he would imagine it. Okay. So it was primarily for budgetary reasons and not creative reasons. Yeah, I couldn't figure out whether we were to think of Broom, who up to this point, I thought of someone embracing the supernatural and all of that as being someone that was poo-pooing the idea of of puppets, you know, and since Del Toro so clearly loves puppets, you know, there's so many of them here in this movie, I thought that was a strange tone to set. He may be poo-pooing Howdy Doody. I, I don't think Broom is down on this idea. You know, I like the look of these puppets. They're, they're very creepy. You guys took this in a totally different direction because he tells Hellboy that that's a silly puppet, and Hellboy goes, no, he's not. And I was thinking, like, back to the demonic puppets from, you know, like, making contact and things. I thought Hellboy knew something about Howdy Doody being sentient that none of us knew. <laughs> you did go in a different place than both of us, Arnie. <laughs> no, no, no. No, Hellboy makes a point of saying he's real, and it starts this dialogue about, are the characters in this bedtime story being read real or not? Now, Broom is pulling out a book that has a lock on it, and it doesn't look like a kid's fairy tale book. It looks like a book of lore. And so I presume that this is top secret information being passed off as a bedtime story. Well, yeah, and Hellboy even asked him, he's like, oh, but that's all made up, right? And Broom's like, I suspect you'll find out someday. I think Broom does know it's real. And I think it's appropriate that it's told with puppets because that's going to be a theme here is, you know, who is controlling you? There's a lot of stuff here about, you know, identifying, I'm just going to say with like race or culture. And are you being controlled by, an, like, are you being colonized basically? And so I think it's appropriate the way that this story is told by Broom. I mentioned last week that Del Toro prefers monsters to men. Here, it's overt. I mean, here, the story is mankind doesn't know his place, uh, even after he's made packs. Yeah, he has a hole in his heart that can never be filled. Yes, exactly. That he just wants more and more and more to the detriment of all other mythical, magical creatures. And they basically have to create an army to kick his ass because otherwise he would take everything from them. I got such a Lord of the Rings vibe off of this beginning. And I think when I saw this in theaters the first time, this really hurt me. It really kind of was like, wait, this isn't what I want. I wanted the horror vibe of Hellboy, and you get these elves, you get these trolls, goblins. I mean, it really is Lord of the Rings, and they're talking about how these other species had to go into hiding. It's like the very end of Return of the King, when the magical creatures leave. You got a crown that's like the ring, it controls power, and it's given, you know, three rings to the elf lord. You got the crown ring broken up into three pieces. Although the elves are gonna, like, keep two of them. They're like, ah, humans get one, and, and we'll keep the other two. I thought that was odd, especially since it was the trolls that built the army. Give them one. <laughs>
Yeah, uh, maybe if they had more time to explore this, I do feel like the ambitions of Tolkien are have to be streamlined here. This movie is under two hours, barely, and so they can't they can't go full on Lord of the Rings. Although I don't think there was any Hobbit talk yet. I do know that Del Toro was up for that gig when Peter Jackson was saying he didn't want to do Lord of the Rings prequels, but this had to be the audition tape, right? He had to realize by doing this story that it would open up doorways for him to do more and more fantasy films. And oh, what we could have had with that Hobbit seeing this one. Mm, Yeah, no, I I like the stylized puppet version of the story. Probably better than if I had seen it in Lord of the Rings epic fashion. I, I think that it feels like a child story in that way, but with an important moral that... There was a character who was left disgruntled, and mankind, of course, has continued to expand. We've cut down trees, we built parking lots and shopping malls, and we have invaded the woodland territory that we were supposed to stay limited in our cities. Well, technically, we just built more cities. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yeah, we had to cut down the woods for them. Yeah, exactly. We obeyed the letter of the law, if not the spirit. Clearly, they needed better lawyers when they were drawing up this crown contract thing. But yeah, this sets the tone for why we have a stringy elf dude in the sewer doing martial arts and ready to kick our ass. And again, he he reminds me of Blade 2, right? With the pasty skin and the hair. Blade 2, I kept thinking about Orlando Bloom and Elrod or whatever. That Yeah, for some reason, people think this is a good look with that long, white, straight hair and yeah pale like this is sexy (laughs) this is not orlando bloom orlando bloom was a pretty boy with his flowing locks this guy looks stringy and crypt keepery I like what Del Toro did with the design of these elves. Like, yeah, they do feel like Legolos a bit with the long hair. and But the way he does those cracks in their face, almost like they're made of ivory or something. Yeah, and he's got a friend, a big creature CGI friend, Wink. No, 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 take that back. Mr. Wink is mostly, there are CGI moments with them. It is Del Toro's favorite puppet that he has ever made. There is a 6'5 actor in there. That face is robotically controlled. (sighs) Wow. He hates that he killed him off so early because that is like his favorite creation ever, he said during the commentary. That is awesome. That is truly impressive. If that is mostly a costume, I would have never guessed. Certainly with, with movement. They use computers to make him, you know, fast. I can tell that. But you're right. When I think about it, 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 he doesn't look CGI. And, yeah, it's really magical. I mean, you could say a lot about this movie, but you cannot attack the creature designs in this. In fact, I would go so far as to say another problem I had with the movie when I saw it was it felt like there were so many creatures. It was almost like Del Toro just opened his sketchbook and said, okay, here's the script, everybody. Film this and this and this and this and this. It's it's nonstop. Did you guys get a Mikey from Men in Black vibe off of that little beastie, though, with his big head and everything? I don't know. I was reminded of the very first alien we ever saw in Men in Black. Perhaps because they're both blue. But no, I wasn't thinking Men in Black with that costume. No, I my mind strictly was turned to Tolkien. I mean, I can honestly say I never thought about Ghostbusters or Lovecraft or any of the influences 
that seem to be guiding that first movie. It's all strictly we're doing Lord of the Rings. And, you know, talking about all these creatures, I think my favorite one comes up when Prince Nuada and Mr. Wink, they go to this auction house. There's something being auctioned that they want, and they release tooth fairies it's going to be a while till we see them we're going to catch up with the bprd but they they go to get that third piece of the crown that's being auctioned off like it's somehow i don't know someone bought it at a estate sale and here it is you know i'm not a man that i feel like is easily offended by visuals or disgusted but this is truly horrifying I was shocked at what a visceral reaction I had to the idea that tooth fairies are essentially like termites that want to, (laughs) you know, eat all the calcium in your bones. I mean, this is mortifying. If you read those old fairy tales, like the Brothers Grimm, like fairy tales are not happy things. They are scary. Read, you know, the the old Cinderella's where the stepsisters are having their eyes pecked out by birds and cutting their toes off to fit in the slippers. Like, I do like that Del Toro goes for that darker fairy tale. And yeah, you take that cute tooth fairy. No, they're they're fairies that want to eat your teeth and then eventually all your bones. Yeah, but I mean, it's cruel. And they are, though, really just like these awesome little CGI demonic crickets. And the way that they're introduced and they just look so cute and then they reveal those pointy teeth and go right after. And when Abe is talking about them doing his research, they're called tooth fairies because they start eating at your teeth. I I love this design. Del Toro has this crazy imagination, which is why I love visiting his worlds, because I don't think I'd ever see something like this anywhere else. You know, but again, I want to stress, like, I think that it can be cute, like, irreverently cute, that, like, oh, tooth fairies are really kind of monstrous. We're going to see a similar impulse in Labyrinth, in the David Bowie movie, in a couple weeks. But these ones really are frightening, like super nauseating the way that they eat flesh off and all of that. And perhaps it's because by the time the BPRD shows up, they've eaten all the auction goers and they literally shit them out. Yes. Like they're just pulps of blood and grossness at this point. It is, again, surprising that this movie got a PG-13. To me, this felt like R-rated violence. Yeah, Nuada is is not one to mess with. We'll find out basically, yes, that he did this to get the first piece. His father has the second piece and he's willing to kill him to get it. That is no surprise. I mean, patricide, it's a big part of fairy tales, Shakespearean lore, Blade 2. So... <laughs> This is a remake of Blade 2. I will give you that. I was surprised. I thought that he would wrestle it away from him, lock him up in a dungeon. The idea that he would, you know, fight with his cool guards or like these guys in like crow helmets or whatever. They take his spear away. So he's got to fight, you know, hand a sword, I guess, and get a weapon from these weird guards. Yeah, I, I was surprised that it went this violent. I mean, I again, I shouldn't be because Del Toro has never made fairy tales that coddle children. That's against his religion. No, fairy tales are dark, mythical, gothic places where you can do incredibly bizarre things. They are not meant to comfort you. But uh, beyond comfort, I am truly disturbed by this point. And the third piece of the crown is his sister uh, running away, sort of kicking the plot into motion, is that she is going to have the last piece that he needs to get the Golden Army, and he has to find her. 
But while this is going on, we're going to catch up with Hellboy and Liz and Abe. They're soon going to be called to go to that auction house to investigate, but we're going to see where they're at. And I do feel like like if the last Hellboy film was all about Hellboy becoming a man, I do feel like they do take a bit of a step back just to kind of go over that again. You know, he's going to go through that same arc. He's going to find out he's literally going to become a father in this one, which I do like that. Like the last one was about father and son, and now this is him about becoming a father. But they're going to go and they're going to reset up all these characters. Liz and Hellboy are living together now. Yeah, I kind of wonder how that works. Uh, you know, interspecies <laughs> dating. I, I, I can go with romance, but sex is a little bit odd. I didn't think about it that much, but okay. <laughs> I don't think you're encouraged to really think about the mechanics of it, but what we're told is she doesn't have enough space. I think that she's essentially regretting her choice of moving in because Hellboy hasn't grown up enough to, like, clean up after himself. The place is overrun with cats, and she can't even find her toothbrush. It's in a can of cat food, and he is just sort of selfish. And he has not made a place for her in his life. I think that's the problem for much of it. I had no idea that really her resentment will be that he is not responsible enough to be the parent of her child. He did clear out some space by getting rid of Myers, though. He's been shipped off to Antarctica. <laughs> Yay, Antarctica. That's, that's perfect. A place as white as he is. Mm. So you didn't need him, although you do need a human character. And I do think another thing that I pushed back against this movie was, all right, yes, I can see the X-Men parallels now. X-Men never occurred to me last week, but now it's very clear that we have this secret order of freaks that the mainstream society has to be protected from. And the difference is in X-Men, they are typically played by humans who look human. And here, they really feel like puppets that are humanoid. I mean, I really feel like it is harder to find an identifiable human character in this cast and that can make it maybe harder to to root for them. I don't know. I think X-Men always tried to have the monstrous creatures who couldn't change their looks. I think of specifically Nightcrawler and Beast. Not a major character though. I mean, not they they that's a side character. In the movies, no, but in the comics, yes. And this is from a comic. I got to believe that we have to look at the comic influences and not just what Singer did. Oh, well, I haven't ever read an X-Men comic, so this is my reference, is that in those X-Men movies, I could go with them because I still felt connected to them. I could see myself in them. Here, I do not see myself in these creations. Perhaps that says something what I think about myself then, because I don't have a problem going with the freaks. And I, I want to see that story. I want Hellboy to have to stop hiding. I mean, Manning is still trying to keep him undercover from the public. That's going to be a major motivation for Hellboy when they go to investigate these tooth fairies is like, he wants to get out of the closet. He is sick of this. And I agree with him. Like, I, I, I can identify with the freaks here. See, I think that's actually the point, and especially when I think of the X-Men, again, the comic books with these monstrous characters, is not to stereotype, but I think that the stereotypical comic audience, especially in the 80s and 90s, were the outcasts, the misfits, those who don't fit in and don't join the football team and the baseball teams. And so they're writing, Chris Claremont specifically is writing these comics so that the outcasts can feel like there's a place where they'd fit in if they look different, if they think different. And I think that Hellboy does the same thing here. I have no trouble identifying, though, because 
again, Ron Perlman is back looking great in the makeup and giving the same awesome performance he did before. I also question why he's so much of a man-child after his maturation story we discussed last week, but he's so damn charismatic on screen. I can't look away and I'm just sucked into enjoying the time. With lesser actors, all these scenes of BPRD nonsense would be torturous. Yeah, it says something that Del Toro could pull off character moments underneath these characters covered in makeup. Yeah, and I want to be clear. It's not that I don't feel like I'm not connecting to Hellboy anymore. It's just that we're seeing fewer and fewer positive portrayals of human beings in this movie. And maybe that can be a little bit hard at a certain point when you're not seeing your species represented. Uh, you guys are saying no, but I feel like that must have been a part of it. I think that Liz is supposed to be our identifiable freak character because she looks relatively normal when she's not on fire. And that's called out that she's able to hide her freak side. So yeah, she is different than Hellboy and Abe. But Selma Blair is not developed enough for me to really get into her drama. Again, I, I think it's just a subtle thing. You're right. It's the point of the movie and it certainly is the conflict they're about to get into is which side will Hellboy choose much like the last movie he had to choose between demons and humans he's going to have to think about that as he becomes caught in the middle between this elf human battle but first he's got to yes clean up the auction house a grisly scene it's really I don't know skin crawling it is, but you know what? It's also funny if you really like rewatch this and go frame by frame. The animation of some of these tooth fairies. There's a lot of Looney Tunes going on. There's this giant fertility statue, and there is a lot of like birth symbols throughout this film. You know, the tooth fairies. They're gonna like pop out of the wall like it's a it's a pregnant belly because we're gonna find out Liz is pregnant. Abe's able to sense it when he touches her. But like these tooth fairies when Tellboy's pushing that fertility statue on him. If you look at them they're like grabbing their heads and yelling like you'd see in a Looney Tunes cartoon. There, There's a lot of humor in here that you, you don't catch the first time watching it because there is so much going on on the screen. Again because it is so revolting like I am I'm not laughing at this scene I, and I'm not saying that I should be I'm just saying that it it was like alarming. I, I I could not see the humor in it. Yeah, when they attack that agent, I feel <laughs> bad for him. Or even yes. when they're like biting Abe's arm off, like it, it is troubling. It is. I mean, it's again. I worry about the children that might be seduced by the creature appeal. It's definitely not for wee ones. I will say the five year old did have to leave during this part, but she wasn't as grossed out as she normally, or as scared as she normally gets during these kind of films. She did like how cute the tooth fairies were. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is really fun. It is kind of gruesome, but it's they look so fakey CGI that it's always a uh, cartoonish kind of gruesomeness they bring with them. And of course, any BPRD agents in suits I know are just meat for the tooth fairy. <laughs> yeah, again, humans are contemptible. They agents can be eaten up, and then the other humans that we meet, Jeffrey Tambor is outside as Manning telling the press. Oh, no, there's just a gas leak, explosion, nothing paranormal going on. I feel like this is Will Smith when he's trying to make up stories in that first Men in Black movie. <laughs> Without the charm, but yes. Uh, Tambor's got a certain charm, but not a Will Smith charm. Uh, he's not a likable character here. You can like the fact that he's unlikable. No, but he's comedic, I feel, during that, that scene. But... He, it's all going to come collapsing because Hellboy and a few of these tooth fairies are going to come flying out in the explosion and land right in front of all the cameras, smash into a car. 
He's out of the closet. And that was completely his intent because even Liz is going to use her firepower and she says, get away from the window. Yeah, I I love that they set that up with her. She knows what he's up to. Uh Uh-huh. And he just gets a smile on his face and stands right there. He's completely planning to be thrown out and shown to the world. And he lands on that car right there. And then, you know, last movie... Del Toro had one shot of Hellboy that was just this up-angled glory shot, and here I think the best shot, it's like a comic splash page, is the Hellboy reveal standing on top of that car, having just shot the Tooth Fairies, the gun is still smoking, and he's got that look on his face, it's just, oh man, it's just... Is an awesome image of Hellboy. And of course, Manning loses his mind because now it's out. Yeah, there's no containing it. And Hellboy, it's it's interesting. You know, he identified last week as a human. He's He is a man. And now he is being celebrated as such. But very, very quickly, I think what's interesting about this movie, the dilemma of that he can't be loved by humans and loved by the other creatures. And it's that same paradox of who do you choose you must choose a side here and they'll even bring up the fact that he is still destined to destroy mankind i think that he has an interesting dramatic arc here yeah he wants to be accepted as a human he's been raised as a human that's why i say this film like blade 2 is a lot about culture or race you know is it a melting pot or or is it a salad bowl where you can't find a middle ground for different ideas and different customs and traditions? I, I do feel like this film's going to try to tackle the, those kind of heavy ideas. We get one more new character rolling in here, and it could have been a Myers. It could have been another squeaky clean <laughs> choir boy, pretty boy, but uh, they go for something else. And I thought it was when they said they were bringing in somebody else. I'm like, oh boy, it's more tambor than tambor, right? I I seen this movie before but man it's been eight years so i'd forgotten that they were going to bring in seth mcfarlane and jacob i gotta turn to you you have a specific hatred for seth oh yeah and yet you love hellboy so how do you how do you resolve the dichotomy i was conflicted going in because i knew seth mcfarlane was it's voice only he's not in that suit and he's not singing frank sinatra yes thank goodness i actually you know what I will give him a nod here. I I actually do like his voice work. I I get it. Yeah, it's the same as that fish on American Dad. This Johann Krauss, the way he plays him is totally different than in the comic. He's not this heel-clicking German characterization at all in the comic. But I do like what Seth MacFarlane does because he's supposed to be heavy. He's supposed to be like Manning and about law and order. And and so I like his voice work here. I'll I'll give him credit. Now, what is he exactly? Johan is a ghost that is in a suit built by Broom. And so he can go out of his suit and, and dissipate. But as long as he's in the suit, he can, again be a human. He can act like a a human character. And so we are having all of these creatures that are adapting to become more and more like us. Abe Sapien wears a scuba suit so he can walk around on land and, and breathe as we breathe. It's interesting, but it is also challenging for humans to see so much non-human characterization. Again, I'm having no problem with it. I'm relating to the characters and they're struggles and they're all humanoid they're all you know star trek aliens maybe the fact that i watched so much star trek in my formative years has an impact on it but these are all two-legged two-armed 
erect creatures that talk English. If it was a little bit more strange, if we had a Horda and a few other weird things, maybe the Scorpion King and they were all talking in subtitles. I know the elves do some, but if it was more foreign like that, I think there'd be a greater problem with adoption. Here, I'm having no trouble at all. I know you're theoretically stating people have trouble connecting and you're stating you have trouble connecting. I don't know that that's a universal. And Krauss was human. They'll make that explicit later, but he's kind of like Liz where he was once human and something happened and he became this ectoplasmic ghost. And yeah, now he has this suit to house himself in. And he can bring characters back from the dead or at least one of these tooth fairies he brings back and it coughs up where they need to go to next under the brooklyn bridge is a <laughs> troll market apparently who knew well yeah trolls bridges i i do love that they call that out that of course the trolls are going to be under the bridge and they need special kind of schuftine glasses uh some kind of goggles invented 150 years before are going to allow them to see old ladies with cats as trolls that are about to eat cats. Yeah, Jacob, you called out the steampunk influences in the last film, but here, with Strauss's outfit and then these goggles, I feel the steampunk is completely heavy. There's going to be so many gears in this film. Yeah, this one's much more steampunk. And as we've discussed, I'm a little steampunk-phobic, but I actually really like the designs here. I think it's enough fantasy, fantastical, and steampunk that it's not... Perhaps it's just the setting. It's not old-timey pretending to be futuristic. It's just got this cool, retro vibe to it. I love those goggles. I love the old lady they encounter, and when they look at her through the goggles, she looks like some kind of orc or troll, and she's afraid of canaries. Yeah, and we see Liz look at Hellboy through those goggles, and he's got the horns and that crown of fire again. Mm, yeah, that was an interesting... Again, we aren't to totally forget that this guy, as charming as he may be, we know him as Hellboy, but he's really... Ang ramen or something like that he's he's really <laughs> as unhuman as those tentacle eye creatures that were going to destroy us in the last movie and i think that it makes him very very interesting i don't know do you, are you guys down with troll lore is, is there a thing where they're really afraid of canaries i have no idea what that means i know that cats like to eat canaries and they like to eat cats i draw from that what you will they use a canary to scare that scottish troll <laughs> when they're trying to find the entrance to the market. And now it's just, again, I talked about that sketchbook. I just feel like this is just, I can do it. I have all the money to bring all these creatures to life. Before in a Del Toro movie, he'd have to pick and choose. He'd use creatures sparingly. I've never seen him utilize so many creatures in one setting. Come on, this is the cantina scene from Star Wars. Times 10. Maybe on a bigger scale, yeah. And a lot of it, again, is puppet works. Yeah, you call the Muppet movie, a lot of this is puppets. There is CGI in there, but no, he wants to make real monsters. And I absolutely just love some of the designs. There's the one person they interrogate and he seems to be holding a baby and he's like, I'm not a baby, I'm a tumor. <laughs> love that line, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do too. It's just, it's so darkly amusing. Yeah, I recognize from an action figure collector standpoint, it might be very appealing to see all these creatures and imagine who they are and what they can do. But I do remember thinking on my first viewing, I was starting to tune out. I was starting to feel like there's a lot to look at and nothing 
to pay attention to. That story was kind of meandering. I'll grant you this. On my first viewing, I had the same problem, and I was really not enjoying this nearly as much as the first one. As I said before, I wanted the horror. We're stuck in this troll market with all these various creatures, and I'm like, when are we getting to it? And I didn't find on my first viewing the prince to be a compelling villain. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't completely understand his motivation. Why now? Why is he pissed off now? He's living in the subway. (laughs) Water dripping on his head. Yeah, that's not my choice. Yeah, he's had to do that because they've lost their forest. And so... I'll say that, I mean, maybe because I'm more of a Lord of the Rings fan, I could go with this fantasy a bit more. And I'm just enjoying watching Hellboy. You know, again, he has to realize what is at stake. And this whole world in the troll market is what's at stake if he sides with the humans. That's going to be called out explicitly in a little bit. But we we have to see that this is, Stuart, you keep saying, well, we need humans to identify with. I think what Del Toro is saying, well, there's also this magic side. And I think he really believes that there's this magic and mythical side of the universe of our world that's also at stake if we forget about it. Yeah, no, that's definitely the moral. But again, there's no human to learn that moral here. We are to be punished, destroyed. This is where the princess comes back into this. She is acquiring a map. Yeah, she fled with her part of the crown and ended up, of course, at the same troll market that the Tooth Fairies led them to. And the map is to the location of the Golden Army. And this is going to be yet another piece. So the prince actually needs four things, three pieces of a crown and a map for this all to come together. But the princess is discovered by Abe Sapien getting his own subplot for the first time. Yeah, he kind of got written out at the end of the last film. Like, once he got injured by those hellhounds, he was done. But he's going to be in this whole film. He's Yeah, he's a big secondary character here. Him and the princess connect by touching hands. Yeah, you had to like him first before you'd want to see him in love. I don't feel like, you know, that's something I really wanted last movie. I'm like, oh, I want that fish guy to find someone. (laughs) But having him be a fun, small part of the movie, we now have the hunger for him to become a more fully fleshed character to have this subplot. Now feels very, very nice. And very much in parallel to what Hellboy is going to be going through with Liz. And I just want to call out Doug Jones. We mentioned last movie, the studio felt his voice wasn't appropriate. Well, let's notice we've changed studios here. Universal stepped in when Columbia decided they didn't want to do this anymore. And now we have Doug Jones actually giving the voice. First of all, he sounds so much like David Hyde Pierce. It's like they hired a voice actor who... Sounds a hell of a lot like the actual actor for whatever reason, but I don't gain nor lose anything with Doug Jones doing his own voice. I still feel for the character the same way, and I think he gives a good vocal performance as well as body performance here. I I like him, and I feel for him when he has this instant attraction to the princess who can't believe anyone has such a horrid name. Well, she doesn't have a great name either, Nuala. (laughs) And Nuwata. (laughs) And she is being followed by Wink. I wouldn't think that he'd be able to go incognito. He's a rather big fellow, but we get some action here. If you've been hungering for a Hellboy to really have a foe that he can punch, I think this is one. Yeah, I do love that Wink has a giant mechanical hand that kind of mirrors Hellboy's stone hand, and they do, you know, fist bump while fighting each other, and again, I love that scene where, like, Hellboy just crushes his hand. I love Wink's reaction, where he's like, 
Yeah, now he's all upset and he wants him to pay to fix it. <laughs> yeah, I do like Wink in this. And you say if we've been itching for a fight, I feel like Hellboy's been itching for a fight since he went into this troll market. He's been like slapping around one troll a little bit, kind of playing bad cop. I think he's a tank. He's a bruiser. He doesn't like interrogation. He likes fights. So he's getting what he wants. We're getting what we want. The only sad thing is this is the end of Wink. He takes him out and I like this creature. I mean, I realize we're halfway through the movie, but I like him a hell of a lot better than I like the prince. You know, to be fair, <laughs> I wasn't crazy about Rasputin last time. So that we have an overall bad guy that's kind of bland as Maybe par for the course. But, uh, yeah, I can't say that when he's throwing out a bean here and it turns into a <laughs> celestial god that that is going to be an adequate replacement for Mr. Wink. I think that Del Toro's right. They killed him too early. Well, look, this scene could have been much worse when he throws out that bean. Del Toro wanted a beanstalk to grow and a giant to climb down to fight Hellboy. And Mike Mignola, who's executive producer and was working with him on the script, he's like, no, that is not going to happen. So... <laughs> They come up with a forest god instead, which is much better. This may be my favorite scene is this forest god scene. And I'll say, you know, this budget, we talked about it, it, around $85 million. It's modest, but for this kind of film, I do feel like a lot of these set pieces, they feel like they're in a back alley of Hungary, which they are. Like, I don't feel like we ever see the city. We always just see alleyways. And, and we're going to see this huge, sprawling god, but it's confined in this little back lot. Definitely feel the same way. I, I actually felt the last film had more of an expansive feel than this one. And probably because we're spending so much to see all these creatures and to see the troll market, then when we get in the real world, it feels less real than the fantasy world. And it's not where we want to be. I mean, I, honestly, I, I think that we would have all been fine with going further into the troll land. To get back to Brooklyn is a little disappointing, I suppose. But they got to replay the scene they had last week. If last time he's got to protect a box of kittens, this time he's got a baby. <laughs> <laughs> he's holding by the tail. Well, because he's got to be a father and he's got a gun called Big Baby and he's going to save a baby. Like, I'm telling you, Del Toro puts these kind of cues throughout the film. Yeah, and I like that. I mean, I think that that's right to send those messages. They don't hit you over the head, but in retrospect, it's obvious that, yes, the theme of paternity is throughout the movie. And the mother is so freaked out because Hellboy has her baby despite the fact that he's obviously saving it. And this is where he really is confused confronted by the prince to make a choice. He's fighting this plant creature and he's being ordered by Kraus to kill it, but it's the last of its species. He'd be causing an end to it and Hellboy's conflicted. Man is not accepting him. He thought what he wanted was to be out of the shadows and... People are throwing stuff at him and telling him he's ugly. He's not happy with man. As Nuwata says, those who cannot command must obey. And I do like, you know, you have Nuwata telling him, hey, join me. This is a creature that's the last of its kind. Do you want to kill this? And you have Kraus, you know, with that German accent ordering him to shoot this forest god. I like... You know, I like the action here. I like when Hellboy, you know, he's holding the baby with his tail. He tosses the baby up in the air to load his gun. But when he shoots that forest god and it dies, like, it is a beautiful scene. And it's weird because it's a death scene. And Del Toro really wanted to do something anti-superhero. You know, we talked about Dark Knight. Hulk, Iron Man, all coming out this summer, he wanted this to be a sad death. Yeah, this is a 
supposedly a bad guy, this forest god, but it, it's, you do feel, I, at least I feel sad when I watch him die and the way everything grows and blooms as that ooze leaks out of him. Well, he's not a bad guy. He's just someone that wants to restore the forest, right? Brooklyn at one time was a bunch of trees and that's what he could potentially do again. And, and in dying, in death, he even does green some cars and some of the pavement. I love when his head opens up and all that pollen like blows off and into the sky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. He was uh, a villain only because of uh, his circumstance. He was unleashed in the wrong place. But I didn't get the sense that he had any real beef here other than he just wanted to live. I love that when he died, though, so much life sprouted. You know, all this stuff lands on a car and I'm like, is it his blood? It's No, it's it's pollens that are going to grow plants right there. It's a beautiful death for the last of its kind, and yeah, it, it even shuts up Kraus for a moment, and, and there is you see all the characters, you see Liz, they're all admiring this, but then the humans turn on them all. They're throwing cans at Hellboy. The lady's freaking out that she has his baby. Cops pull guns on him, tell him to drop the rock in his hand. That is his hand. Man, I hate humans. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? But. I think if there's a double... Look, in real life, when that first Hellboy movie came out, it came out around the same time as The Passion of the Christ, and there was theaters that did not want to carry it because it had the word hell in it. So I think humans might react this way if there's a devil walking around. Admittedly, I'm just saying that, again, if if you didn't pick it up, Del Toro is already let you know who he sides with. It makes you wonder. We're not going to get Hellboy 3, but when the choice is made about Hellboy having to protect mankind, would he have have such a problem i i don't know you know would he put the bullet in mankind and open the door uh it, it's curious maybe it's good that del toro will never have to get to that position again we see him struggle a little bit with that at the very end we'll talk about it but i do think this is about hellboy trying to decide again i grew up in this culture i, I grew up with these people but they're not accepting me the, this is a post 9-11 movie and that is on del toro's mind how can Muslims get along, like, in America? Are we just going to reject them because of what some terrorist did? Like, these are the kind of things that were on his mind as he was writing this. It's also just fairy tale stuff. I mean, I do feel, again, I keep going back to Beauty and the Beast and the romantic subplots. I mean, I do feel like they're more helpful in this movie than they were last time, that they're a little more integrated. I guess because Abe has the romantic partnership with the major new character that has the of the crown that everyone needs but i feel like it works better this time you're hitting on one of my problems with this film though and that is that this entire prince princess golden army thing it's a case that hellboy has to work if it wasn't for this interpersonal stuff liz's pregnancy abe's attraction to the princess these characters would be completely peripheral. It's the same complaint, Stuart, I think you lodged about the second and third Blade films. Is It's not Blade's story. Blade is in the middle of somebody else's story. I feel that by delving into his Pan's labyrinthian world here, that Hellboy is visiting del toro's story and this isn't necessarily a hellboy story well yeah because there are no demons to represent uh him yeah that none of these are his people that you know he could side with the plant or he could side with the humans but technically speaking he is neither in that way he is maybe not as well integrated but also the last film was his destiny the people who brought him to this realm 
also need him to destroy the realm. It was all about him and his legacy, his destiny, his choice. Here, they're going to try to work it in and try to say, are you with the humans or with the monsters? But it's never a conflict that I really feel, even though... Perlman plays it well in this plant scene. I feel his relationship with Liz and his friendship with Abe far more than I ever feel any kind of conflict about should I work for the BPRD and should I help humans. Yeah, I might agree with you there, Arnie. I don't know if Hellboy struggles as much as he probably should. I feel like I struggle with it, though. Like, I feel the stuff that Del Toro's bringing up, like, it's stuff that's getting me to think during, even though the characters may not be struggling with it as much. I like the questions being brought up. Yeah, I feel it's just a less satisfying narrative than it could be. I mean, it's it's difficult to say. In many ways, I feel like it's mirroring many things about the movie last week. But yeah, for reasons I can't even totally articulate, I don't feel like it's working as well. I think production-wise, it's gone heads and tails above what it was doing last week. But as far as showing you the best of what Hellboy can do in a situation, working on this team. Yeah, I again, I think the romance storylines are stronger than the actual capers that are unfolding. And we are going to get that romance right now. I mean, I feel like this film, it doesn't have a problem going from like, superhero movie to fairy tale to romance to screwball comedy like we get this scene where hellboy is going to confront kraus and i love that when he just punches him right in the helmet and the ectoplasm <laughs> just leaks out and he's like huh, oh well i guess that's all i'll have to deal with with him glass hole yeah and then i love that kraus fights back like he does that locker thing and hits him with the doors that's a little too slapstick for me hellboy getting beaten up by the lockers i'm like just step to the left He's drunk. He's been drinking this whole time, and he's going to drink some more with Abe. They're going to bro out and talk about their loves. And Abe, what does he do? He puts on these contact lenses I get, but doesn't he still need something to cover his gills? Yeah, I noticed that, like... Yeah, he takes care of the eye situation, but the rest of the film, he's never going to cover those gills up with water like he had to at the beginning or in the last film. Okay, so I didn't miss something. You know, this is getting into a little bit of Guardians of the Galaxy territory here when they're having this heart-to-heart over Barry Manilow, and <laughs> it, it is feeling a little bit too creaturey, a little too slapsticky, a little too silly for my sensibility. And the studio hated this scene, and of course they wanted to cut it, and Del Toro was like, no. This is the scene I will have. Yeah, I like this scene. It allows me to care about these characters because I don't care about their mission. I like the prince and the princess's characters, but I don't care about their golden army. I don't care about this crown MacGuffin. But to see Abe Sapien rocking out to soft rock, I, I like it. Wouldn't it be more satisfying if he had all three pieces of the crown and the Golden Army was a bigger part of the second half of the story? That they're being saved as the big bad seems like you're withholding too much. That I would much have rather had a Golden Army battle than the plant death. No, I like that plant death so much. And I think just logistics wise, they don't have the money to have that Golden Army march out of Ireland and into the U.S. and have a big battle. Yeah, I mean, they could have been in the U.S., but still, I like them as the big bad for what they represent. They are truly unstoppable and keep them in the background. It's Del Toro is trying to explore different themes here about man versus monster. When you start bringing in the inhuman, it changes the narrative. 
But this is where we're really going to start kicking off the climax because the prince has the psychic bond with his sister and he infiltrates the BPRD and though Abe and Hellboy are drunk, he's going to come in there and fight. He kills all the guards, but because as Stuart will keep saying, humans are awful in this film, but I like that he lets the guard dog live. (laughs) (laughs) Feeding it blood even from himself. Yeah, that was something. Yeah, I'm not really crazy about the prince and princess and this dilemma about if he gets hurt, she gets hurt. It does kind of feel like a play off of the Sams last week when you kill one to appear. I... I don't know. I'm not in love with this as a as a villain or a, a conflict. I like it because it's not so much about Nawada and Nawala. It's about Hellboy's friendship with Abe. Like, that is why he doesn't go for that kill shot, because Abe says you can't hurt him because it's going to hurt the princess. And I feel like it's more about Hellboy's feelings for Abe and, and being his friend than wanting to just kill the bad guy. It's an interesting conflict for Hellboy because he's killed everything. And what you're willing to do for what who you love is a big part of this climax. It is definitive, really, because Hellboy gets stuck with a piece of metal in his heart and will only be able to be saved when Liz is going to make a deal for his soul. This whole thing is a little bit clumsy, right? I mean, the prince has Hellboy dead to rights several times, but doesn't cut his head off. He puts the blade right there, but lets the fight continue. And then he finally spears him, but doesn't kill him with this magical metal that anytime you try to remove gets closer to the heart. Obviously, I understand what Del Toro is trying to go for here, and I honestly think he's using a few scenes here just to set up a part three climax. I can almost tell you what the part three script would be. Yeah. But instead, they want to just keep him wounded, allow the princess to be kidnapped in order to create a way for Abe and the others to rebel. And Abe finds the crown because he knows the princess so well with his love and he's willing to take it when everybody else is just going for a fight. Well, he's going to make a deal for the princess. I mean, ultimately, Liz and Abe are going to do the same thing here. I'm not sure that Liz makes the right choice. Even before they get to Ireland, it's all about people trying to make choices about their loves. We'll see Krauss, like Abe, Liz, and Hellboy are going to steal a BPRD plane to get to Ireland. Krauss confronts them, and earlier on, Liz said, you know, you, you've forgotten what it's like to be human, and Krauss reveals, you know what, I was married once. He shows this wedding ring. Like, it's all about these freaks, you know, tr- making these decisions that are best for them, whether it's regaining their humanity or growing closer to their love. Yeah, I'm not sure that Krauss can hit that emotional beat that the other two are. No, no, it he doesn't, but they try. They do work it in as a theme, and I always appreciate that, that there's an effort. But I feel like where you feel it is, yeah, once they get to Ireland, there's the blacksmith troll. The guy that made the Golden Army is there sort of like a wheelbarrow. <laughs> Like half troll <laughs> half or half troll half wheelbarrow creation. Yeah, he lost his legs when he was making the army, so he's he's doing the Eddie Murphy thing and trading places and wheeling himself around. Ah, I did not pick up on that. Okay. 
He says at one point after they see the angel of death and he's leading them to Prince Nuada, he he says he regrets making that army that it even took his legs. Okay, yeah. It just feels like a lot of magical things are happening. Again, the sketchbook concept of because I thought it, I'm going to put it on screen. And like even the entrance is like some figure sitting up in the greenery. I mean, it just the more extravagant, the better is the impulse. And I think when I originally watched that movie, at a certain point, that became frustrating. I wanted more attention paid to the plot and less on creatures. I agree. I felt the same way. And this entire Angel of Death thing feels like a different movie. Yes, it's Hellboy 3. Yeah, exactly. It's as frustrating as the one character that shows up in the middle of Batman v Superman for no reason other than to set up a future film. But it is the best creature in the whole shebang. I gotta say my favorite thing, maybe in any Del Toro movie, I don't know, some ones in Pan's Labyrinth, I'd have to think about it, but certainly in the Hellboy universe, my favorite one is this angel of death with the eyes on its wings and no eyes on its face and the leering smile. It reminds me of the similar character from Pan's Labyrinth with the eyes on the fingers or the hands, you know, it's... And both were played by Doug Jones, the Pan's Labyrinth one and this one. Yeah, and it's competing for my favorite Del Toro creature creation. I'd have to think about which one I like better here. But again, the the deal is Liz can have the magical metal removed from Hellboy's heart and he'll recover. But is that the smart thing to do if Hellboy is only going to grow up to kill everyone, including presumably her children? She makes the same choice Hellboy made in the first film. Hellboy decided to go full demon to save her so her soul wouldn't be lost and she has to make that same choice and she goes the same way. That Hellboy could go full demon if it will save him. Because that's where a third film we'll never get to, unfortunately. Yeah, but it is different because Hellboy is making the choice to be a man. Here, she's thinking selfishly that oh because I love him that's all that matters she's not thinking about oh I don't know humanity at large and her own children's lives are probably being put at stake because she made this choice I think she's got an ace up her sleeve because after she makes the deal and the silver's removed the angel of death says now you have to say something to bring him back and that's when she tells him you're going to be a father I, I think that would probably be the ultimate humanizing factor if we ever got that third film before Hellboy destroyed the world. Yeah, we may never know what that battle could be, but I'm afraid of it because of this scene. And again, we see Abe Sapien make the exact same choice. He has that crown piece. He hasn't told anyone because he's waiting once they get inside to tell the prince... I'll make you a deal. I'll give you your little piece of metal if you'll give me my love. Yeah, this is this is where it feels very fairy tale. Like everything is about your love. It, you know, Liz is going to risk the world for Hellboy. Abe is going to risk the world by giving this crown piece over because of his love for the princess. What is the resolution? Like, if you can't kill the prince, like I don't know. I guess this is Abe's humanizing moment is that he makes this irrational choice for love. He says very accurately, "You would do the same to Hellboy." Hellboy doesn't like it, but he's right. He would do anything for Liz. She obviously risked everything for him, and so why can't Abe have that moment? I like that he does. I like Abe a whole lot more than I like the princess is the problem. I'm like, I wish you had better taste, Abe, but because I like you, I'll go with this. Go find yourself a nice tuna. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. My entire empathy for the princess comes because Abe likes her, because I don't really care about these elves, and I think we should have killed him when we had the chance. (laughs) 
put up a parking lot. <laughs> Talking about set pieces, though, I, I haven't been too impressed with them, except that troll market was neat, but I do love this set piece. Like, Tail Toro calls it a fetish, like his fetish for gears. Like, it is on full display here as all these clockwork gears are moving around as Hellboy and company confront the prince. It's an awesome set. It's an awesome design. And I love the Golden Army when they show up with their glowing orange insides that is like almost lava. I would have liked them to have a battle and maybe it is a budgetary thing, but I feel like they could have shown up earlier and and shown how indestructible they were and that this was a rematch. No, I, I like the surprise here because Hellboy and company, they're winning. They're, you know, Hellboy shooting everyone. I love it when Krauss like possesses one of them and that orange light turns blue and they're winning. And I, I love that surprise. I remember being blown away like when they all just start, you know, crawling back and putting the Golden Army. They had just re configure themselves and they truly are undefeatable i i'm glad i didn't know about that earlier yeah i thought too because like there's a buffy the vampire slayer episode where a demon comes to earth and it's like no weapon made by man can destroy me well it's a thousand year old demon buffy literally pulls out a bazooka and blows him apart and that works because he hadn't expected it to have such a good weapon so i could see that before we even counted time these creatures might have seemed indestructible, but when faced with Hellboy and an ectoplasmic wraith that can become one of them, yeah, maybe they'd be able to be taken out. I thought we were just in for a big fight. The fact that they can put themselves back together again, it's an awesome twist. I wouldn't have wanted that reveal earlier. I like that this is the climax. I like the animation too, like the way that head crawls like a spider and then the hand reaches down and grabs it and puts it back on. Uh, you're right. It's a, it is a good oh shit moment. I mean, how is Hellboy going to get out of this? You forget, he's not Hellboy. He's Angon Rama and that means he's royalty. So that means he can actually challenge the prince for the right to wear the crown. So then it becomes obvious. If he can wear the crown, then he can make the army do whatever he wants. But he'll never be able to take out this army. Yeah, he remembers that howdy doody fairy tale story that Broom told him when he was young and that he could challenge. We saw Liz, again, look at him through those special goggles to remind us that he does have that crown of fire on him. And it is a little obviously set up when little adolescent Hellboy is like, what would have happened if someone challenged? Well, yeah, yeah, I knew at that moment what was going to happen here. And then they remind you because Nwada gives that speech of do any challenge. And so the moment Hellboy says I challenge, the army stands down and they have a rematch. And this time Hellboy is sober and wins easily. I want to say Nwada, I don't know if it's the actual actor. I can't remember what they say or if his stunt double. But this is not wire foo. When he is jumping around and doing all those flips, they've just built trampolines into the ground that they CGI'd out. Like when he does that one where he like sideways triple flips onto one of the gears, like that guy's actually doing that. Yeah, I can believe that. It, it felt that way. I mean, I, I definitely, with Del Toro, I expect no less. You know, he mocks Howdy Doody for being a marionette on strings. No strings, no CGI. This is a guy that wants it to feel, to look real, 
to be real. And I think that he always does a good job of making the fantastical as tactile as possible. That said, I still don't like this prince and I still don't <laughs> think he's a bad actor. I like his sword work when he's like flipping it all around. But because Hellboy carries a big gun, every time the prince started doing his dance move with the sword, I just expected a replay of the Indiana Jones scene where Hellboy just shoots him and goes, <laughs> okay. They're definitely ripping off that. Yeah, but he can't hurt the princess. That's set up. And the other big part, Arnie, you said it earlier, Hellboy usually just shoots everything in this film. Here at the end, when he defeats the prince and the prince is saying, kill me, I'm not going to stop. Hellboy says, I win, you live. And that was another big thing for Del Toro was to have a, in quote, superhero movie where the good guy won't kill the bad guy. I wish that had felt more organic. I don't know. That felt, that didn't feel like a mature moment. That didn't feel like, wow, Hellboy has learned his lesson here. He would have learned it if he wasn't doing it to save Abe's girlfriend. You know, if he was letting someone live out of mercy, it would feel like more character growth than letting someone live because you don't want to kill an innocent. That's right. But basically, it's only because Abe likes this chick who will die if he kills her brother. And we have her deciding to die anyway, because... You know, there's the famous, you turn your back after you won the fight, he comes for him, and she stabs herself in the stomach, thus defeating the villain at the same time. Do you think Abe kept her? Because these elves, like, turn into this stone, amber-type substance when they die. You see the prince, he falls apart. But the princess, she gets to stay in one piece. Mm, I don't want to think about what Abe's going to do with that. (laughs) Best not to ask. But we find out here, I know I love that Manning is like outside looking for him, like all pissed off. He's like, no, that's not an entrance there. They're not in there. And they walk out of that stone creature and they all quit. And this is something that does happen in the comic. There is a moment where Hellboy realizes that the BPRD does not have these freaks' best interest in mind. And so he does quit the BPRD for that reason in the comic. And we see a similar thing here. I think they finally realize that here they all realize they're going to go out and be their own Abe, Liz, and Hellboy. And they all turn in their badges. Kind of a shocking ending. I mean, Jeffrey Tambor had been the antagonistic presence again, but after he and Hellboy kind of came to terms at the end of the last film, I really didn't expect them all to be like, all right, we quit, walk away. Yeah, it's obvious that he was conceiving a trilogy. It's obvious that this is just a middle link to something that, well, it just doesn't look like we're going to see as a movie. Now, there may be an animated thing, there may be a book, a comic book, But uh, I think this is it. I think we were right to fit it in as a two-week franchise because I just don't see how this is going to continue. Do you think if this was like a part three or part four, Liz would be having triplets or quadruplets? Because she's having twins, she reveals at the end, because this is Hellboy 2 after all. I wonder what they're going to look like. Yeah, again, it makes you wonder what what are they going to do with that? A good twin, bad twin? I was thinking that. I was definitely thinking good twin, bad twin, like the Star Wars Expanded Universe and all that, where one would fight the other, one would be demonic, and one would be human, right? That was my guess, yes. I do love, again, because this also is a rom-com and a screwball comedy, like, the last shot of this film, like, freeze frame on Hellboy, like, oh, I'm having twins, like, it is such a weird last shot, but it makes sense for what Del Toro wants to do. Yeah, and this ending seemed familiar to me, too. It's because I saw it in Cocktail with Elizabeth Shue and... Tom Cruise. Earlier, she shocked him with the news she was pregnant, and at the end, right before credits, she shocks him. They're having twins. 
really drives home that rom-com feel, to support your point, Jacob. To Barry Manilow, no, no less. Well then, I guess the question is, if this one's for you, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Hellboy 2, The Golden Army? Jacob. I'm going to bring up a film that none of us liked, and some people got really upset about that. Remember Stardust earlier this year? Oh, yes, yes. I worked hard not to. Yeah, we probably all want to forget it. <laughs> a lot of people are like, well, you guys just don't get fairy tales. That's why you didn't buy this. No, I get fairy tales. I like Hellboy 2 The Golden Army because it is a great fairy tale. Like, you want to give me an irreverent fairy tale, this is the movie I'm going to recommend. Not Stardust. Like, I could get into that genre, that Lord of the Rings, that fantasy stuff, but I like what Del Toro does here where he makes it darker, but there's still that humor, and I love the costume design here, the character creatures. Like, I think I prefer this one more than the first just because it feels more like Del Toro's world. I feel like he was bumping up against the studios with that first Hellboy film, and I, I didn't like that last creature he had to fight. And But here, this one, I smile when I'm watching it, which maybe you don't want to do that if you like that first one because it was a horror film. But I like this, really, this expanded universe created for Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. I put it up above that first one. And yeah, so this one's a strong recommend for me. Stuart. Yeah, I agree that it is Del Toro being given license to deliver his most Del Toro movie ever. Honestly, I don't know that he'll ever have as much money and as much creative freedom to do whatever he wants and do it. And for that, it's always fun to see an artist be able to have that moment in their career. That said, I can't say that I'm such a fan of Del Toro that I would want him to do that at the expense of the story, which I do feel like suffers because he wants to cram in so many creatures and he wants to go so far in the direction away from humanity, really, thematically and with his characters, that it can be somewhat distancing. I didn't like it the first time that I saw it. I have come around to to really both enjoy the character design, which I always liked, but also to see the positives of this story as well. As shaggy as the tale can be at some turns of plot, I do think that overall it does work. And I, while I can't agree that it's better than the movie we had last week, I do feel like it is a nice representation of what fantasy films can do and gives me hope. You know, I feel like now knowing that I have this bias, this creature bias, I can revisit movies like Guardians of the Galaxy and, yes, Turtles, which we're getting to in a couple weeks. I wasn't a big fan of that either. Maybe my problem is when I don't have enough humans on screen that I tune out. So I'm going to be aware of that when I revisit those franchises and see, and I'll keep that in mind. If there ever is a Hellboy 3, bring on the creatures. I think that is what Del Toro does best. And I'm going to give this a pretty strong recommend, and... I wouldn't have said that if this was like a weekend of release. If we were doing this back in 2008 and we built up to Hellboy 2, I think I would have had unmet expectations in that I was expecting more of what I got with Hellboy. I was expecting a superhero film. I was asked last podcast, do I consider Hellboy a superhero? In part one, yeah, I think that is a pretty standard superhero film. You got a supervillain, you got a boss battle, you've got a main character with special powers, you've got the love interest. It felt like a pretty rote superhero film. Here, we're not in a superhero film. We're in a fantasy film. He is the night. He is the warrior. He is going to go into the land and do battle with a prince. And when I walked out of the theater, I was like, 
Well, that really was not what I was expecting. And even though I make a lot of correlations to Blade 2 and I see them there, I liked Blade 2 more than this. But what happened is even though Pan's Labyrinth came out before this, I didn't see it until after this. And I really got to explore that world and really appreciate its beauty and what it brings. And I can't give a high enough recommend to Pan's Labyrinth. I think it is my favorite Del Toro film. I will say that Del Toro on the commentary, he said his favorite smaller films, the personal ones to him, were Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth, and that Hellboy 2 was his favorite, like, big studio film. Yeah, I can see that. And then coming back to Hellboy 2, though, after Pan's Labyrinth and everything, with reset expectations, I think this movie's gorgeous. I love the creatures. I love the design. I love the conflict. I love the humor. When I say conflict, I'm talking about the personal conflict for Hellboy. Unfortunately, the plot is a little weak, but there's again so much here and once again, great performances. Selma Blair really coming into her own. I She was kind of mousy and not, didn't do a whole lot the first film. I think getting rid of the milk toast agent allowed her to become a badass. She, you know, when we first see her here, she's walking around with a gun and leading a troop of red shirts. I like how she's become. I like the humor of Abe Sapien. So I can't tell you which Hellboy film I like better. I just like them both for very different reasons. So yeah, recommend. Yeah, that's great that we've had six green arrows for the series. You are in agreement, Arnie, with me that this one... Not as much as the first one, though, right? No, I'm not. I said just as much. Okay, so you're not going to pick... You're not going to rank. I can't. I like them both for such different reasons. There's no comparison. I can't compare them. That's like saying, do you like the Dark Knight or the Smurfs? It's like, they're, they're, how do you even compare the two? But you can compare it with Batman Begins. <laughs> What about you guys? How do you rank them? Jacob is 2-1 and I'm 1-2. Yep. Right. And Artie's not going to break that tie. Nope, I'm going to I'm going to abstain. <sighs> well, the good news is we're all saying the same thing. See them both. And see Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> and Devil's Backbone. And Stuart, you referenced the X-Men movies so much with this show. We're going to go back to the X-Universe next week. X-Men Apocalypse. Completing a trilogy. Are they going to fight Hellboy? Is that why there's an apocalypse? No, it's going to be the end of the franchise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. That's the apocalypse. <laughs> So I hear from the reviews, I don't know, I haven't seen it yet. I'm still optimistic. I know I'm going to like some things, but yeah. Yeah, and it's also the end of all the contracts for the actors. So it may really be <laughs> the end for this trilogy. End of Fox Studios. Who knows what's going to die when we get to it next week. And this begins three weeks in a row of weekend of release reviews. First X-Men, then the week after that. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and the weekend after that, The Conjuring. Two. Both of them are part two, yes. So we hope you'll join us for that. And don't forget, we have our donation series continuing this Friday, our third in the 1986 sci-fi series, Space Camp. Yeah, return to Cape Capshaw. See if it can be an improvement over Temple of Doom. <laughs> I don't think she could do worse, but we'll find out. I hope not. And it's Leia Thompson's second sci-fi adventure of 1986. Mm -hmm. No ducks in this one, though. No ducks. For all the details, click the banner at the top of our homepage, nowplayingpodcast.com. So, Stuart Jacob, thank you for joining me for this review. And until next time, go to hell, boy. What makes a man a man? 
friend of mine once wondered. Is it his origins, the way he comes to life? I don't think so. It's the choices he makes, not how he starts things, but how he decides to end them. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Hellboy Retrospective Series. We hope you've enjoyed the show. What have you done? Guess we're out. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. Second date. No time. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Hellboy movies with other listeners. If there's trouble... All us freaks have is each other. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other comic book films, such as Batman vs. Superman, all Marvel's Avenger films, Spider-Man, X-Men, Blade, Watchmen, Daredevil, The Punisher, and Fantastic Four. I hate those comic books. They never get the eyes right. You can also listen to our reviews of other movie series, including The Fast and the Furious, Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, and many more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. I black out after each episode, sometimes for hours. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book. Underrated movies we recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage. Well, come on in. Meet the rest of the family. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Let this remind you why you once feared the dog. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. We die. And the world will be poor for it. Now Playing's Hellboy Retrospective Series is edited by Heath and Arnie. What a horrible will could keep such a creature as this alive. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. We're going to talk all night because I'm really sleepy. Now Playing is not affiliated with Dark Horse Comics, Revolution Studios, or Columbia Pictures. Hellboy and all its contents are the intellectual property of those companies, and no infringement is intended. Oh, what? Are you threatening me? Because I think I can take you. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Hey, I can be discreet if I want to be. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Anything else you need? Not from you. Well, good night. Goodbye. He reminds me of Blade 2, right? With the pasty skin and the hair. Blade 2, I kept thinking about... What's his name? I can't even remember his name. He's so forgettable. Um, I kept thinking about Elrod and what's his name? Uh, he was like he was in Elizabethtown. Orlando Bloom. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, I kept thinking <laughs> about Orlando Bloom and Elrod or whatever. That 
to become more and more like us. Abe Sapien wears a scuba suit so he can walk around in... in Air? <laughs> I know that. I don't want to say that. <laughs> on land. On land. <laughs> 